Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is a very dear friend of mine and mentor, an organ builder, Gene Bidiant, who's going to share with us his insights about the art of organ building. Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Gene Bidiant started the Bidiant Pipe Organ Company over 40 years ago. He based the company on the combined love of all things technical and music. Over the course of this journey, Bidiant made many pipe organs throughout the U.S. that are a legacy of craftsmanship, artwork, technical engineering, and audible beauty. In 1969, Bidiant started rebuilding and repairing organs in a garage in Lincoln, Nebraska. His vision grew over the next 40 years. Together with a small, dedicated crew, Bidiant Pipe Organ Company built more than 80 organs, large and small, each unique, each an artistic and technical work of art. Because Gene has recently retired, the Bidiant Pipe Organ Company is now under the leadership of Paul Lytle and Mark Miller. Both men, together with a group of passionate builders, are dedicated to carrying on the legacy of the founding builder and continue to craft intricate works of art, art that endures and inspires. I want to start our conversation by asking you, how did you fall in love with the organ? Uh, As uh, surprising as it may seem, I had not ever seen a pipe organ until I was a student at the University of Nebraska. Um, I was interested in music. I studied piano from an early age, and when I came to the university, I was uh, set out to study electrical engineering, but I also participated in a um, campus music program at one of the campus chapels. At that time, it was called Wesley Foundation. Later, its name got changed to Cornerstone, uh, and I guess another name after that. But I was participating in the choir there at that chapel, and uh, the choir master organist by the name of Dick Morris learned of my interest in musical instruments and technical things, and so he took me to show me a new Reuter organ at um, Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Lincoln, and I just became fascinated with the technical possibilities of the organ. So that was my introduction to an organ. Excellent. Um, And why the organ was so fascinating to you? Uh, Was it because of these mechanical things that uh, related to your engineering interest? Yeah, I've always loved machines. Uh, It's just something that I've always appreciated, enjoyed tinkering with them, taking apart mechanical things and seeing how they work. So the organ was kind of the ultimate ultimate mechanical challenge plus the musical aesthetics combined to it, just as something that I think captured me and captures has captured a lot of my colleagues past and present. Excellent. Uh, I admire admire your your long term commitment to building organs. And I first met you. 
back in 2002, remember, at, at one of the Eroy conference in Rochester, New York, where uh, on one of the workshops they showed us how the metal pipe was being made using sand casting technique, which was prominent for Arp Schnitger, a 17th century North German organ builder. So, can you tell me how important to you are historical organ building techniques? Well, um, yeah, that's uh, you've asked a, a, a big question there, and uh, I think that they're they're very important. Um, I suppose when it comes right down to it, the um, ingenuity, insight, artistry knowledge, passion of any individual organ builder, I suppose, ultimately is more important than any kind of historical techniques. But, uh, having said that, when we look at what we have available today in terms of uh, innovation in technology compared to, say, how it was in early centuries, it would seem like you would have the ability to make something absolutely fantastic. And yet, if you apply all the modern tools, technology, scientific uh, research to making an organ and trying to make it as absolutely perfectly perfection as possible, often the result can be very dull musically. So this is something that is a conundrum for us who have built organs, is why can you listen to an organ that was made, you know, in, in 1780 or 1700 or 1650 or 1600, and you just, you're captivated by the sound and the overall aesthetic of the instrument. So uh, that is absolutely what has led many of us in the 20 and 21st century to try to learn how they had such a high degree of success with some of these instruments. Um, so anyway, yeah, they, uh, the historic techniques are fascinating. And I think that the success or failure of them in a new instrument has a lot to do with how you interpret them. Uh, I will never forget a time, I think in 1990, maybe at the Boston National Convention afterwards, I went to visit my friends at the Fisk Company. And uh, I stepped in the shop and I, Bob Cornell was there, and I said, Bob, is it okay if I take some photos? And he said, sure, we only have one rule about that. If you learn any secrets, you have to tell us what they are. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how even in 20th century and even now in 21st century, people who are fascinated by the historical organ building uh, techniques and methods continue to use even sometimes the the very simple tools like uh, like for planing wood and for things like that uh, that are 
that are uh, really um, crucial for f for making an organ um, a very li uh, uh, to, uh, for coming alive this instrument f for helping the organ speak um, and I remember how I first heard your famous organ at Cornerstone uh, uh, which is uh, of course Opus 8 and uh, this was um, um, not in Lincoln but in, in the Netherlands uh, in the Netherlands they had the Alkmaar Organ Academy International Organ Academy and I was a student there for a couple of weeks and um, I remember meeting two young uh, Scottish organists who asked me um, what I was going to do next and, and I was just finishing my master's degree with uh, with Pamela Rotterfinstra at EMU and now was thinking of, of going uh, to UNL, to Lincoln and they said, both of them exclaimed basically oh, you, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska where that world famous organ with uh, incredibly flexible winding uh, by Gene Bedient stands and I, said, I thought, wow, that's a really interesting place. I want to go there. So <laughs> can you tell me what makes this incredibly flexible winding possible? Well, um, flexible winding is, is, winding is an important aspect of any organ, whether it's flexible or, or not flexible. It's, I think that winding has to be has to provide a satisfactory result of sound, and it can be really tricky. Um, I didn't know much about it when I uh, when I was building that organ with my colleagues back in 1974-75, and uh, I was just be beginning to learn about that. And uh, John Brombaugh had become a friend and. Uh, he, he and his his partners really shared a lot of great information with me, and that continues till today. Sometimes we still have conversations about uh, the organs, even though neither one of us are making them anymore. But that whole question of of wind is a really important one, and I think that organ builders have struggled with it over the centuries and sometimes you make everything the way you think it should be technically but the result is not satisfactory like maybe there are wiggles in the system that cause kind of unmusical effects or maybe it just has a lifeless sense to it so anyway when we did the one at uh, Cornerstone I think I I had a lot of luck by accident in how successful it was but I, w I also must say that uh, I had the uh, a gift given to me there at in, the, in that situation with that organ in that town because I lived there and I got to hear so many amazing organists play that organ and some people even people that knew it really well could handle the wind system just marvelously and others made the organ sound not very good because they didn't understand how to use it. So I think that the wind system in an organ is a part of the aesthetic available to the organist. And organ builders try to make a system that is suitable 
but also that gives the organist some possibility of working with it if the organist has that knowledge of how to use the wind of an organ. And some do, some don't. Yeah, and I guess uh, that uh, some organists uh, don't particularly enjoy playing with, with this very flexible winding uh, uh, keyboard. I mean, because you have to be very conscious of, of the releases and uh, the pressure of the keys as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I mean, here you are saying this to me, Vidis, and you always handled that organ so, so well. So <laughs> you obviously understand it well. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and so if an organist is of the mentality that you just want to play as accurately and fast as you can and you know, not give any thought to, as you say, attacks and releases, well, then I think a wind system like that at Cornerstone is is not for you. I think that you really have to be willing to work with it, learn from it, as you and, and many others have, and uh, it can be a real gift to the ultimate outcome of, of performing music. That's right. Um, uh, let's be a little more specific po for our organist listeners who are uh, wondering uh, what do we mean by flexible winding and how to control it, okay? So, uh, as I understand, uh, flexible winding m m uh, is made by the really low wind pressure, isn't it? And uh, 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 Well, not necessarily. Uh, the wind pressure doesn't have that big of effect. You can have, well, that's a whole other topic for another discussion, but I guess uh -huh. just to, to diverge for just a minute, wind pressure in organs, unless you're talking about really, really high pressure of extremely high pressure horizontal reeds of the 20th century like St. John the Divine in New York City. Unless you're talking about that, the wind pressure of organs measured in a water column uh, varies from, oh, maybe 40 millimeters, uh, which is around, uh, one, uh, around one and three-fourths inches up to you know, 100 millimeters, about four inches, or in the case of an organ like Poitier, the Clico organ, uh, 120 millimeters, four and three-fourths inches. So the range is somewhere in there. So within that range, that doesn't have much effect on, on flexibility of sound. Um, in the 20th century, it became desirable to, well... Flexibility of flexibility in a wind system means that you will hear some variations in the sound of the organ, as you indicated, when you play a chord and when you, particularly when you release it. If you release it really quickly, uh, it provide it creates a shock in the wind system because that wind is going through a whole lot of pipes and you stop it very abruptly. So something has to happen. So there's an aftershock, and you kind of hear that as a jolt in the pitch of the organ. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, so anyway, I think pressure doesn't have much to do with it. What what causes 
flexibility of wind system is a wind system that in a way is kind of minimal. Charles Fisk wrote a really great article about the flexibility of wind some years before his death that was published in the Dye Basin, I believe, and he he equated flexible wind to being like in a boat and having a very small motor where you're you're maneuvering that boat with that very small motor compared to a, a, a boat that had a really huge motor where you didn't really have any control. You just went forward or you stopped. Mm-hmm. So flexible winding uh, is a sort of a minimal system of wind where, um, well, I guess I should back up just a little bit and say that historically it sort of happened naturally because wind had to be produced by people manually manipulating bellows to fill them release them and let them supply air to the to the organ and it was an alternating system where you had not one bellows because if you have one bellows when it's out of air you have to stop playing so there had to be more than one so one could take over when the first one was out of air so this inherently caused some effects in the sound of the organ and it, it happened naturally so organ builders always tried their best, I believe, to minimize any unpleasant effects that this had by making the wind relatively stable so there wasn't much of this effect on the pitch. But it all depends on the organ. It depends on the history. Even by the time you get to the 19th century, the French Romantic organs have some flexibility in the wind. They're just not absolutely stable. They're just not absolutely dead because, again, the wind was being produced by people it wasn't until 1929 that the organ at Saint-Sulpice got an electric blower, and it has five pumping stations. It required five people to manually pump air to supply that organ if, it, if the entire organ was going to be used. Wow, that's a very hard job for, for five people, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right, and it's always been a lot of work until the advent, discovery, implementation of electricity. Until that time, it's always been a lot of work to provide wind to an organ, even a small organ, because it took one person working fairly hard any time the organ was being played to supply that wind. So it's hard to compare historic organs with modern organs in a way, Uh, because the technology of the delivery of wind is so much different now. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I remember I had the privilege uh, to play seven of your organs while studying at UNL uh, with OSHA. This morning we counted, uh, uh, for example, Cornerstone Chapel, St. Mark's on the campus, chapels at Grace Lutheran in Lincoln and St. Cecilia Cathedral in Omaha. Madonna Chapel, Residence of Mary Murrell and Quentin Faulkner, and of course the big organ, uh, St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Lincoln. And I observed, uh, of course, the elegance and beauty of the design in all of them, either small or large instruments uh, that you build, but as well this warm and rich tone. So can can you tell us what creates this warm and rich tone in your organs? Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question, and I I have to tell you that uh, I think in an organ, in my opinion, 
um, whether you sense that warmth or not, obviously there are a lot of factors that contribute to that, and not the least of it is the acoustic. But within the context of organ sound, I really attribute that sense of warmness, if it's there, to the principal chorus. Um, and I have to say that I really feel like I owe a lot of the success of being able to create that type of sound to Charles McManus, the only organ builder that I actually worked for. Um, mm -hmm. He's been gone, I suppose, 10 years now. But uh, I worked for him for a period of time, and he uh, learned. He was uh, located in Kansas City, Kansas, built a lot of organs, and he learned his principal sound voicing techniques from looking at Johnson organs from Boston, 19th century Johnson organs. And what he observed was that the flue opening of principal pipes was not straight across even, as you so often see it, but it was curved. So the, uh, the, most, the, the center of the lower lip was sort of curved outward and it moved in towards towards the edges of the flue. So if you look down into the flue, you would see this this um, natural curved shape that is not unlike the, the human when you open your mouth. Yeah. Well, you don't have a thin slit when you open your mouth. You have sort of an oval shape. Yeah. And, you know, I think he really was on to something there, and I think that, that making the flu shape like that and having a, a su sufficient height of the mouth so the pipe will develop some good, good sound energy, those are important contributing factors to making this warm type of sound. And you don't see it in a lot of organs. You see organ builders make the flu of their principal pipes Absolutely parallel, perfectly straight. So I've never done that because I learned from McManus that you can get this really nice, warm quality by having that more open flue. Open flue, okay. That uh, that's understandable, of course, and very very important. So uh, can you tell me uh, the number of the organs that you built? Is it eighty-nine? Uh, I I saw that on your website of the company, or or more by now. That could be right. At the time I left uh, the company and in 2005 we had completed 81 organs and I think that there was an 80, number 82 was about finished but hadn't been installed yet. Mm -hmm. So at this point they've done more projects since I have left so I think 89 is probably in the vicinity of the correct number. And of course, we should mention that uh, this o famous Opus 8 uh, from from the Cornerstone Chapel was recently moved to another place, to another home, also uh, basically in Lincoln, in the same town, uh, in in St. Thomas Aquinas Church, right? It, yeah, that's right. It's only about four blocks away from from where it was first built in, and installed, and uh, it's uh, I think a not just in modern times, but uh, it has happened historically that things happen with churches, organs get moved. The famous organ at, uh, of, of Schnitger and Koppel that is was made so famous by Helmut Walsh and his recordings, it's, it's not its original location. So this does happen. The uh, Cornerstone 
chapel uh, has actually been demolished. And I yeah. guess five of a new structure is going to be built there. So it's really fortunate, I think, that the people at St. Thomas Aquinas who wished to build a new facility decided that they would like to have the cornerstone organ, and they have built a, I haven't seen it, but they've built a really beautiful chapel with really super acoustics, and our people uh, did some some mechanical uh, minor fix-up work on the organ uh, and reinstalled it and also have added pedal towers, which at this point do not have pipes in them, but eventually the organ is going to have a few pedal stops and pedal towers, which will be a very nice addition. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, about 89 organs, and I know it's it's they are very diverse and in style and techniques and method used uh, and in shape and size. And um, I know it's difficult to choose, so to say, one child over the other, but can you name some of your most important organs yeah. over your career? Sure. Well, uh, we had some, we were given some really uh, wonderful opportunities, I think, to build organs of some different types because at that point when I was in the primary part of my career, there was a lot of interest in various types of historic organs. So the organ at uh, Cornerstone is very much a, a North North European style of organ, German, Dutch, earlier than, than Schnitger. Uh, and everything worked so well with that organ, the way it was built and the acoustic and everything. You mentioned St. Mark's on the campus. Uh, Cornerstone is Opus 8. St. Mark's on the campus is Opus 11. Yeah. And there we we had a um, a chapel with really fabulous acoustics, tall, narrow chapel. Uh, never had an, uh, a pipe organ, and so we were asked to pro to pro provide a proposal in 1978, I think it was, and we did. And I just had the idea that because of the really great acoustics, it would be great to build an Italian style organ. Um, because it couldn't be a big organ, but it needed an organ, I thought, that had a lot of depth and sound, but gentleness. And so I came up with the idea of doing this Italian-style organ. So, I mean, those two organs, uh, a few blocks apart, are, are, are totally different in style, and they're, I think they're both very successful and very unique. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I would certainly cite those two, but... Uh, we, we were able to build a couple of French-style organs, 18th century French, which is not in its original location. It's now at the University of North Texas in Denton. It's a 40-stop 18th century French organ, patterned as closely as we could make it after organs like uh, organs of Clicquot, like Souvigny and Poitiers. And then after that, we had the great luck of being able to build a 19th century French style organ which is not in its location, original location either. It's in Charleston, South Carolina in a really, really wonderful acoustic and I think both of those organs are totally unique and totally successful. So I mean those are four that I think are really great but 
you know, also you mentioned St. Paul Methodist Opus 70. Yeah. That was a great opportunity to build a unique organ, too. And uh, that church had such acoustical problems, but uh, a friend of mine, Dominique Sheen, was working with the architects, and he improved the acoustic tremendously in that church. They were really skeptical about having us build the organ because they had an old Reuter in there that had certain warmth and loveliness, but it had been unfortunately redone two or three or four times, and there was not much of the original left. Otherwise, they might still have it. So anyway, when we built that organ, we tried to make something, and it's a it's a, uh, a big organ. It's... Uh, around 40 stops and so we did our best to try to make something that would be warm that they would like and we were just on needles and pins that they might not like it but they loved it and they they continue to love it as we understand so it's a, it a great success and it's a totally different organ than the others but it employs some of the same things that the cornerstone organ employs like the principal voicing technique that I mentioned and actually some of the same alloy used for the pipes uh, in the Opus 70 were used in Opus 8, same thing. So that, you know, you learn, it's just like you as musicians, you and Oshara, you know, you over the years you think, well, you know, my, my playing and my interpretation is going really well, but then three years hence you say, my gosh, look how much I've learned. So, you know, that's the way it goes with organ building, I think. When you get really good, so you you really know how to do it, why well, you're too old and you retire. <laughs> <laughs> but you shouldn't be so modest because, of course, you are a musician too. Uh, because, of course, you are an organist, right? And, and have, that's right. That's right. Uh, over the years worked uh, as an organist uh, from time to time and even now I think uh, uh, you are contributing to the organist profession as well in another country, right? In That's right, yes. Right. Where, where are you now? Can you tell us uh, a little bit? Yes, when I retired uh, from the organ company my wife Gwen entered the, the uh, American Foreign Service uh, just kind of a series of accidents happened and we served she served. I was along for the ride two years in Algiers, Algeria, and then two years in Paris, and now we are into all, nearly completing a year in Harare, the capital city of Zimbabwe, which used to be called Rhodesia. And uh, there, it was a British colony, so there are, are organs here, and I've done work on organs, and uh, I agreed because they they really don't have many organists here. Uh, I agreed to play one Sunday a month at the Anglican Cathedral. So yeah, I'm doing that. And I'll tell you something else about that in a minute. But yeah. and, and I appreciate your photos of, of uh, uh, Zimbabwe organs that you see in Africa and post on Facebook. That's really, really fascinating. Not a lot of people saw, of course, around the globe previously these instruments, but they are worth seeing as well, I think. Yeah, indeed they are, and it's, uh, they're fascinating things. They're, the organs here, except uh, for one exception I know of, came from South African builders, uh, primarily a company called Cooper, Gill, and Tompkins, 
who were in business not any longer, but were in the business 100 years as of 2002. They made a lot of organs, and there's one really remarkable one that Casavant made and built here in the Catholic Cathedral in Harare in, in 1927. Totally original tubular pneumatic organ in excellent condition. So, yeah, there are interesting things here, and I'm glad that we've been able to get the word out about them. Excellent. So, uh, I'm really grateful for the tip you gave us uh, and uh, pointed to the documentary the co called uh, The Wind at One's Fingertips, which was created about building your Opus 21, uh, originally yep. for Grand Rapids, Michigan, but which yes. was later moved to the University of North Texas, as you mentioned before. So. Can you tell us, uh, how did you come up with the idea of building the first French classic organ in the U.S.? Uh, can you repeat the question, Vitas? Yeah. Uh, how did you come up with the idea of building the first French classic organ in, in America? Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't come up with the idea that the organ wouldn't exist were it not for the organist choir master at that time at uh, St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Grand Rapids, a, a gentleman by the name of Bill Elliott. And uh, Bill is now living in Florida, retired. Uh, he had studied with uh, Marchand in Paris as a young man and fell in love with the sound of the French, early French organs and so he'd always said if he had the opportunity, he would try to see one made in America. And so that's how it came about. And I had I had been to France when we started talking about that and fell in love with the country and knew some of the important organs when before we even start having those discussions. So after we uh, after he he and the committee really saw to it that I had a chance to do that, then I got serious about going back and doing some more uh, first-hand investigation of historic organs and doing some measuring and listening and trying to develop ideas. So, And with Bill's help, we arrived at the specification of the organ, and through our research and with a lot of, uh, of investigation of uh, the book by the French monk Dom Bedos from the 18th century who documented organ building in that time, both in text and in drawings. We came up with a with a plan to make it, and it, and we did. Beta complete. Excellent. Uh, you see, uh, this this documentary is so important in my opinion that it should be a required. Uh, um, required basically like a textbook for organists who are interested in uh, in uh, in organ building and design, like like for for these classes uh, that some some organists take at university level or conservatories. This documentary should be on that list too, I think, because uh, the work that you do is so behind the scenes, and nobody really s sees the inside of the organ that that. Uh, that uh, the work that has been done, uh, woodworkers and uh, and your 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 other craft craftsmen and artisans who who carve the wood and uh, make the pipes. That's really fascinating, and I think uh, worth worth uh, uh, watching uh, for 
many many organists around the world I definitely will share the link to this video with my yeah. uh, that's good well, it, it kind of has a life of its own I think it was first aired in 1986 and at that time it was shown a lot uh, the corporation for public broadcasting in the US picked it up and they showed it nationally it was made by Nebraska Educational Television and then it it found its way all over the world and I've had people from um, <laughs> many different countries tell me that they'd seen it, Israel even, uh, and, you know, all kinds of places in the world. So it kind of has a life of its own, and it, it ever so often it will resurface, and yeah. then I'm here again. So anyway, a lot of people have seen it. I was surprised that you hadn't had yeah, yeah, and, and I just watched it uh, last night, and I, I will watch it uh, many times in the future. I'm very, very sure. And okay. I think my subscribers will enjoy this this documentary as well. So and it is, is incidentally available on DVD through the Great Plains National Television Library in Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay, I'll look it up and okay. share the link too. Excellent. So, so when you when you build an organ, Gene. Um, of of certain historical style and um, and national period na national national style and historical period, uh, how do you decide that this organ will be French classic or French romantic or German or I maybe even it Italian? How do you come up with the, with this uh, with this idea of of the style? Well. Or is it the work between the organist of the local venue of the church, uh, what what he or she wants, for example, discussions, uh, or how 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 what is this process? Yeah, very interesting. Well, that's a really interesting question, and I had the I've had the good fortune through my travels of getting to know a lot of different historic schools, national schools, and styles, and you know it's. It's complex because a German organ in Germany has three fairly distinct parts, divisions of different styles of organ building historically, and of course an 18th century organ is totally different than a 19th century organ. So I had the good fortune of getting to know quite a few different styles, and that gave me a expanded vocabulary of what I could offer. And I'm not alone. I mean, there. A lot of people out there, just like you and Osra, who, uh, as I was in the, you know, the main part of my organ building career, had also experienced a lot of these instruments and loved them. And so, it was almost always a collaboration with an organist. I, I, was very fortunate to do a lot of work that I loved doing, but I could never have done it had it not been without the collaboration of organists who also had a vision for certain things that we were able to accomplish. Yeah, this collaboration is really important. And, yep. uh, yeah, and uh, very important then for the organist to get to know as, as many great organ builders as possible, don't you think? Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely, and we live in a time when, well, during my career, I think some of the best organ billing happened in the 20th, 
21st century America that has ever happened just because of certain coincidences of certain personalities that got into organ building when they did and a certain time of being ripe to explore certain things. And uh, I'm sure it's been that way throughout history. I, I think sometimes today people say, oh, we see the organ as being in decline and it's sad. And I think, you know, people in in France at the end of the uh, French Revolution must have thought there would never be any such thing as organ building again. Yeah. And um, along came Cabier Cole and people like that and uh, Zauer in Germany and, you know, just amazing things continue to happen and I think they always will in the organ world. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, when you built uh, your early organs and uh, uh, later instruments, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the famous Dombedo's book, uh, right? Uh, the Art of Building Organs, which is, by the way, translated uh, in English, uh, right? Um, exactly. And you mentioned John Brombo as an as influence to you. Um, besides these figures and uh, sources, uh, what other influences did you have when learning to build organs? Can you tell us a little bit? What are their interests? Uh, influences. Uh, the people, influences. places, for example, yeah. sources. Yeah. Well, um, hmm. you know, I got to be uh, really good friends with some some people in France. The organist at, uh, at the uh, Basilica of St. Peter and Paul in Souvigny, Henri Delorme, who unfortunately died of cancer a few years ago, we became really good friends, and when you have a chance to, you know, know someone like that on a first-hand basis that has come up with the tradition of those instruments and the improvising on them and knowing them so well, you just you learn so much. So people like that certainly were really important to me. Uh, but you know, I think I suppose the biggest influence on me was not so much people other than John Brombaugh and his staff. He, he definitely was, and Charles McManus earlier on. Uh, beyond that, you know, I think it was really experiencing some really great organs that had been made. And, you know, I would always go out of my way to try to see new organs that had been made by my colleagues, too, because, you know, that's, that's a really important part of it. And, Gosh, some of my colleagues just, I think, succeeded in such a big way in making some really amazing organs in the world that uh, it, it's been great to be to be part of that and to experience what what my friends have done too. Yeah, that's true. It's a, it's a big uh, big community, right? Uh, uh, yes. g global, I would say, community across the Atlantic, right? And even uh, in in uh, in other countries, not only in Europe and the U.S., but also in uh, in Canada, there are great organ builders in in uh, in uh, in other countries, right? And you you collaborate, you communicate, right? Um, in in these days, it's so easy to communicate, right? And uh, to share those ideas uh, with one another and uh, uh, and um, create great art together. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and it's a very good point you have made. And I would say that modern communication is a boon and a curse in some ways, but it certainly does enable us to communicate more. But communication doesn't always 
or necessarily uh, rely on the, the way of communicating. I've had older organ builders than me describe experiences they had when they were learning from different builders in Europe and how the master would would hide what he was doing so they couldn't see it because he felt the master felt that these were his secrets and he didn't want to let them out <laughs> and it's so, and you know I think we very fortunately have lived in a time in the in the late 20th century and the early 21st century where there does seem to be a real openness and a sharing of of how you do things and you know I think it all goes back to what Bob Cornell at Fisk said, "If you if you learn secrets, let us know what they are. Because you know when you try to to do something, and even an individual builder like myself, you do something one time and you think, oh man, that's great! I learned so much. I'm going to do that again. Well, the next time, you might have a totally different result. At least that's what I have found. So uh, the communication is great. It's important, and I think it's really in the, at this time helped to further the art. And I think." Most people just want that. They Most builders want that. They want the organs to be as good as they can be for all of us who have participated in this craft. Exactly. So, um, so imagine an organ builder who builds a lot of organs. And, um, Gene, can you tell me, what does it take to build an organ that is an artistic and technical work of art? Because not every instrument will be work of art. Uh, can you agree? on that yeah yeah that's right yeah boy I think uh, Vetus if you could answer that question I think you sort of a demi demigod <laughs> <laughs> I know I know <laughs> I don't I know. know that's a, that's a tough question to it answer is tough, yeah how you answer it yeah but you're absolutely right and you know within the within the field of organ builders there are organ builders who do not set out to create anything of a fantastic artistic quality, but rather a product. Uh, there are people that it's, that's their intent to create that, that sort of an organ, and then there are people that go out of their way to try to make something unique each time. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. You know. And I remember uh, on that. Uh, documentary about uh, the Grand Rapids organ, you talked about your Opus 1. Remember the first organ you built without uh, knowing actually uh, how it will be, be in the future, uh, without much experience. You said that it wasn't a very successful instrument, but years later you came back to this instrument and rebuilt it and, uh, and the church was... Uh, you know, uh, fascinated with the new instrument uh, that, that you basically um, gave it to to, it, uh, to the church, to the people. I think that's a work of art, right there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I I think most of us that go out and do these things feel a sense of responsibility to the people that have trusted us that the organ has to work well. It has, it has to sound good, and so if it hasn't, because of our inexperience, I think it's a, a common thing for us to go back and make it better, was for me. Yeah. So, um, of course, uh, when you build an organ, um, there are lots and lots of uh, um, 
collaboration with 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 your company people, with artisans, with woodworkers, and people who make uh, metal things, metal pipes. And uh, how do you start? Where do you start? Is it a, a design process uh, in your head or on the computer? How do you start with the with the idea of creating a particular instrument, for example, and then developing it further into the completion? Yeah. Well, certainly it does begin with the design process in your head, and whether you use a computer or pencil and paper, then you get get ideas recorded more permanently than in your mind and expand on them. And I think the best people employ the ideas of their of their coworkers in seeing this process expand. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely, and. I think in in Europe, where the art of organ building is so ancient, um, and the traditions go so deep, and people tend to serve true apprenticeships in organ building, which I didn't do, and which a lot of Americans have not done, you um, develop organ builders who can do so many aspects of organ building without even anything written down on paper. <laughs> Whereas if you're dealing with people like I generally did where I trained them myself and I even had limited knowledge myself a lot of times, um, you don't have that benefit of people who can, can do things with their eyes closed and do it well, so you really have to get a lot of details recorded and do a lot of training of people to do things in a certain way and it's not easy yeah and of course uh, you mentioned ap apprenticeship uh, that's how you probably learn the craft that's how generations before you uh, learn the craft and uh, don't you feel that this apprenticeship method uh, really um, uh, continues to make this art of organ building alive for the future generations? Yeah, it does. Uh, and I think uh, in America it certainly happens too, but it happens in a much more informal way than I think the European tradition, which still goes on, where people go and work for an organ builder for you know maybe three to five years and really get a good foundation in in doing all aspects of it. Uh, in America, it's you can start a business knowing nothing about it. I mean, there are no requirements in America that you have to know anything about what you're doing to start a business. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was me. I didn't know very much, but I thought I could do it. So, so that idea of apprenticeship happens in America because all builders take on new employees, and often that after a number of years, an employee will leave and start their own company. So in a way, it's, it is an apprenticeship, but I would say it's not nearly as structured or comprehensive in America as it is in Europe. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, during your entire career when you build uh, more than 80 um, organs, um, many of them are tracker, of course, but some of them are electro-pneumatical. Right, and of course uh, we have to mention to, to our listeners that you, not only you build new instruments, but also repair and rebuild existing ones that are in need of reparation. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so they are very diverse in style and the techniques built. So can you tell us a little bit what are the pros and cons of the tracker and electro-pneumatical organs? Mm-hmm. Well, as you very well know, you've asked another extremely complex question. I know. And uh, I spent most of my career building mechanical action organs, which is my personal preference. I, I think just as, as you and many of your listeners, uh, we like that sense of being integrated into the operation of the, of the instrument. Just like a violinist is integrated into the operation of the violin or any other, any other individual instrument players are really part of what's going on in the mechanics of it as well as, as just this, the personal input. Um, so in an organ, I think when you have mechanical action, you can have much more uh, involvement in the aesthetics of what's going on than with the electric. The electric uh, has technical advantages if you see them as as advantages, like you can locate a playing console anywhere. doesn't have to be integrated right into the organ structure itself as it does with mechanical, and some would see that as an advantage. Um, beyond that, I don't I don't think that there are really great advantages of the electric action. It's just that it tends to appeal to a certain uh, certain percentage of organists, and it's just human nature. Some, some people like it better. We have to probably mention that uh, electromagnetical or just electric action allows uh, probably for uh, uh, sudden changes of registration, right? Very, That's uh, true. Combination action, at least combination action could be yeah. solid state uh, or, or an, as any other. You can program uh, many, many tens of, yeah. of, of stops uh, in one group of, of color and then by just one push of a piston or a button uh, or a toe, toe knob, you basically change from fortissimo to pianissimo and vice yeah. versa. And this flexibility is of course required for for symphonically uh, conscious works that that 19th century composers or even 20th century composers created around the globe uh, but uh, is it, it is it possible to create these sudden registration changes without the combination system without like with levers and uh, ventils yeah. of some kind Yeah, well, absolutely. That's what uh, Aristide Capier-Cole achieved in in France starting in the 1840s. Uh, he had, his family lived in the uh, southwest of, of France, and because of, of political conditions and health conditions, his family often moved back and forth between uh, northern part of Spain and southwest France and, and he and his family, his father, his grandfather, his brother, they did work in Spain as well as in France and every organ builder has certain, had created I believe, developed certain innovations that were unique and the Spanish uh, had certain ways of controlling 
registrations and stops and novelty devices using foot pedals, whereas this wasn't really common in Northern Europe. So Cavier Cole brought this idea into, into France from Spain, and then he had a lot of fortunate fortunate accidents, uh, accidental discoveries and accidental acquaintances in his career. Uh, and he, probably the thing that made his career was uh, making the <coughs> acquaintance of a Britishman, Charles Barker, who had developed a pneumatic device that would allow, through wind pressure, the work of pulling open valves in an organ much easier than if you could do it mechanically. Uh, in the 19th century, with romanticism, sounds got uh, greater depth. The, the number of fu fundamental stops, 16 and 8-foot stops, expanded enormously. And when you have big stops in an organ, it requires a lot more wind and it requires a lot more force to, of the, of the, on the behalf of the organist to control the organ to open the valves with your fingers because you only have a certain amount of muscle power available. So Cavier Cole uh, used this device of Barker that was sort of, is sort of like power steering in an automobile and enabled the organist to do a lot of opening of pallets with great ease. And then with the Cole's own invention of the foot pedal system, he came up with a way of controlling blocks of sound quite easily just by opening or closing uh, valves that were controlled by foot pedals. So you could keep your hands on the keyboards and make really amazing uh, contrasts of sounds by moving among keyboards and operating these foot pedals. So what he achieved by the 1860s is really amazing, required no electricity, and enabled an organist to go from very soft to very loud, just like you can today with the most modern electronic type of controls. So <clears throat> being able to do this is not reliant on modern technology, but I think there's always been the desire to make organs that can be made larger, play easier, and have more flexibility for the organist to create many different varieties of dynamics and sound. Yeah, that's really a fascinating topic and um, has a lot of lot of relevance to a lot of people around the globe. So, uh, Gene, I'm conscious of your time now and I'd like to begin to wrapping up. And uh, for the last uh, section of our conversation, can you uh, tell us how important uh, for an organist is to know the insight and mechanics of the organ? Well, a really good question. I, I think, I'm not sure one can say that it has a lot of importance or that it has to have a lot of importance. I think, again, it's, it's dependent on personality. Over my many years, I've worked with organists who have the ability to go inside of an organ and do amazing things in terms of minor repairs or adjustments or even tuning some pipes. I have had other organists who are fantastic and have 
absolutely zero interest in doing that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I think that I personally think it's good for organists to know what's going on inside because if nothing else, it gives them a greater pers- uh, a greater sense of appreciation for everything that went into it. And it seems like that alone would be would be interesting and beneficial. Uh, but uh, necessity, there probably isn't necessity. It probably is a matter of individual interest and curiosity. And if an organist is really curious, right, as you as you as you say, how can he or she learn to tune and maintain uh, this instrument that he or she plays? Uh, is it necessary to to find an organ builder around? this area that he works or she works and uh, or just by uh, getting inside the instrument and trying things regulating things and tuning things but it's probably dangerous to do it on 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 our own right it's better to consult an an expert probably yes i think you're absolutely right about that one without knowing how it functions or what the requirements are for changing something one can do a lot more damage than good and unfortunately this is this has happened historically here in Harare where I've been working um, and I've seen this throughout my career you'll go inside of an organ where someone has been inside and hasn't really understood the delicacy that they might step on little pipes and bend them and this sort of thing, so someone has to come along and make repairs. So you, you do have to know what you're doing, and I think the best way is to try to get an organ builder or an organ maintenance person to help for those that might might, might be interested in doing that. And learning how to tune read stops, which are the ones that most frequently need to be tuned, is not that difficult. Uh, so absolutely, and I think that Organ technicians and organ builders are happy to make time for someone that's interested and teach them some rudimentary things, and we would all much rather have somebody trying to do that work who's had some some instruction and some help rather than trying to do it on their own without uh, knowing what to do. That's right. And of course, uh, in these days when technology is so available for all of us, when we have a, a, a video a video recording suit, suit in our uh, pocket, basically, uh, <laughs> making uh, video lessons, uh, recording video lessons about tuning and maintenance of the instrument is so simple. And I'm yeah. just basically waiting who will be the first organ builder who will create this course for organist for example how to tune and maintain and regulate the instrument <laughs> yeah well very good very good point yes I, I can see that that absolutely is something that could be of value and will undoubtedly happen excellent so uh, can you tell us Gene, uh, uh, what's the best place uh, our listeners can find you and your work online oh well uh, I post information about what I'm doing all the time uh, on my Facebook page, which is very easy to find. The BDN Organ Company also has a Facebook page, and the BDN Organ Company has a, um, a website that has, I think, photos and some description about all organs that we have made. So those are those are resources that I think of. 
yeah so thank you so much for this wonderful um, inspirational conversation you are a real gift to a lot of people around the globe Gene. and thank you for the work you do it matters a lot to, to all of us well that's very kind and I, I must say too that I'm so pleased with the work that you're doing in developing uh, instruction uh, for organists online your your online courses and techniques that you're offering I think is really a really a great thing and you're using this modern gift of communication so well I believe thank you I'm flattered <laughs> yeah. not at all if you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.